The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Okay, here we go. Happy January, everyone. I hope you're enjoying the new year and finding plenty of time for family, for feasting, and for Franz, Franz Kafka. I got on a roll and I couldn't think of any authors named F. Foucault, maybe. Faulkner, there we go. Oh, and Fitzgerald, of course. Foucault is a good reference for today, and Faulkner, too, for that matter. We're talking to Professor Emma Maggie Solberg about her book, Virgin Whore, which takes a look at... Ah, excuse me a moment. Somebody is knocking at the door. Some weather here Hello, in the studio. Me, Lady Macbeth, ah. I'm here to ask you... Now, now stop. Sorry, that's my dog, Spot. His favorite dog walker hasn't shown up yet, and he's refusing to... Out! Out, you damn Spot! He's simply refusing to leave the castle without his favorite dog walker. What happened to the dog walker? Funny story, actually. I had my husband kill him. Mm. I can't remember why. Something about a dagger. Anyway, our desperate and sweaty minion, Jack Wilson, is going to procure a new dog walker. But he... Spot! If you don't get out now, I shall kick thee all the way to Dunsinane Hill. You know I would. You know I would to Dunsinane. Ahem. Won't you help Mr. Wilson secure a few funds? Spot and I... She'll be ever so grateful. Mm. Here I am. The desperate and sweaty minion. There we go. You can help support the show along with Lady Macbeth and all of our other friends by heading on over to patreon.com slash literature and signing up for a small monthly contribution. We're trying to get an ad-free trying to get to an ad-free point here at the History of Literature, although maybe I shouldn't be saying that out loud. Forget I mentioned it. We appreciate all of the advertisers here, but we're looking forward to the future as well. Where were we? Our guest today, Professor Solberg of Bowdoin College. She's an expert in medieval literature, and she has written a fascinating book called Virgin Whore. There are times, dear listener, where I feel really good about giving you a very solid overview of a book. Sometimes I think we capture about 50% of the book and what's in it, even more, 90% of what a book is about. That's a good service. We provide a whole book, all the ideas in the book, all wrapped up in one neat little hour-long bundle. This is not one of those times. We only scratched the surface. It's a fascinating subject and an extremely interesting conversation that I had with Professor Solberg. But I would say we covered about 5% of the material in the book. It's a very rich book, and I would encourage you all to seek it out and read it. What Professor Solberg has discovered here is kind of mind-blowing or mind-expanding. She's taken the subject of the Virgin Mary. We all know the Virgin Mary, right? The mother of Jesus, the quiet, chaste figure in the stories and paintings, the Madonna, the purest of the pure, sheer goodness. Professor Solberg has found all of these old plays and references to Mary from the Middle Ages, and Mary then was very different. As they wrestled with Christian doctrine and the story in the Gospels, they tried out many different Marys, including a trickster Mary, a less-than-chaste Mary, and on and on. If you like the Da Vinci Code, but if, like me, you wished it was about a thousand times smarter, then you will like this book. And I hope you will like this conversation. Professor Emma Maggie Solberg, here to talk about her book, Virgin Whore, brought to us by Cornell University Press. After this.
hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Emma Maggie Solberg, Assistant Professor of Medieval Literature at Bowdoin College. Professor Solberg is here to talk about her recent work, Virgin Whore, published by Cornell University Press. The book takes a look at the treatment of the Virgin Mary's sexuality in English medieval literature and culture. Professor Solberg, welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. So I want to get to you and how you came to write the book. But first, I thought maybe we could set the table a little bit. Uh, I thought the book frames this question in a way that I found useful. And let me take a shot at it. And, and then you can tell me if I'm if I'm getting it right here. Um, okay. So we often think of an individual's sexual experience, in particular a woman's, as being kind of a loss of innocence. And we apply this to societies as well, that that's the general narrative, that the past was a more innocent time and today is more corrupted and we're more knowing and that kind of thing. But the Madonna has actually grown purer over time. And at different points in earlier points in history, she was uh, less chaste than we think of her now. And society's views of her have become more puritanical. Is that kind of a fair summary of the project here? That's a fair summary. Yes, that's a fair summary. And I think I find this when I'm talking to my students about the Middle Ages. I think as Americans in particular, when we think about the past, we think about the pilgrims and the Puritans. Yeah, That's our origin myth. But the Puritans were running away from merry old England. They were running away from the late Catholic medieval period and all the excesses of that period and culturally a touchstone that Americans um, have for the kind of late medieval Catholic festive Christian culture that I'm talking about would be Mardi Gras. Right. That was the spirit of late medieval Catholicism. It was one of the spirits of late medieval Catholicism and Christianity uh, reformed and moved away from that, especially American Christianity. And now there are only these small vestiges like the Mummers Parade in Philadelphia for the new year or Mardi Gras. Right. Of okay. this old festive merry time. Right. Okay. So you study the Middle Ages and the literature of the time, the medieval period. When did this jump out at you as something that should be treated in a book? I uh, first read these plays when I was an undergraduate, and I remember going to the college library and I had to cut open the pages because the book had not been read since it had been ordered for the library in the late 19th century. <laughs> wow. So these texts are not, these texts are <laughs> still not widely read. Uh, it, it is taking them a while to become part of the canon of English literature. And I think all of us who study this genre, we're always trying to evangelize everyone else to read these plays because they're incredible. Hmm. And you're talking about the End Town plays? I'm talking about the End Town plays, and that's the manuscript that I study in particular, but it's an entire genre of yeah. late medieval vernacular drama. Every town and village and city in medieval Europe, in medieval Christendom, they put on all these plays. It was a major form of entertainment, and they're produced anonymously by the community. They were performed by the community and they give you a real interesting cross-section of medieval culture in a way so many other literary artifacts don't. So yeah. much of what we have comes from court or comes from the monastery or from the nunnery, if we're lucky, from the nunnery. In right. England, we have very little of that. But these plays, these are really interesting for a cultural historian to look at because they come from the community rather than from individuals at the top. And how did they get recorded and preserved? 
there are very few uh, records of these plays that last. So sometimes they would be recorded for bureaucratic purposes, for civic purposes, if uh, there was a system of fining or a system of how much does this candle cost and who's paying for what, then all of a sudden there would be a massive record. Hmm. And so th that kind of legal record of the plays is what we have. And then a rare few of those survive through the Reformation Many of them were simply lost. We only have a handful of records of these plays, and those records are only snapshots of one moment in their long life. They were performed for centuries. Right. We only have one copy created for one strange purpose that happened to survive the Protestant Reformation. Wait, so how do we know what was in the plays? Well, the, the records are pretty elaborate play scripts. Oh. We're very lucky to have those. So you have a script. Some of them have stage directions. Yeah. Occasionally you will have a audience member. This is really not that common for England, but sometimes on the continent, you'll have someone in the audience record their experience of a play. That's precious. Right. In England, there are only a couple records of audience response, and they're really interesting. Like, for example, there was a play about the funeral of the Virgin, and there's a record that we have, and it exists because there was a legal complaint where the audience got too raucous, and the guilds who were putting on the play complained to the city, we don't want to put this play on anymore, the audience goes nuts, they're laughing and they're joking, and we don't think it's appropriate. So from that, we can see, okay, the audience were laughing and joking. Right. Okay. At the play of the funeral of the Virgin, which yeah. is interesting. <laughs> yeah. And so when you were taking a look at these and putting together kind of these these scraps of plays or summaries of plays or the audience reaction to plays, when did it, I mean, did it jump out at you right away that the treatment of the Virgin Mary was very different from maybe the official position of the church, even at the time? Yes and no. I think that when I was uh, writing my dissertation, I wanted to write about virginity. And I wrote a prospectus that was crazy. And my dissertation director told me to go back to the drawing board and focus. Uh -huh. And so I decided almost by chance to focus on the Endtown manuscript because in my list of literary texts that dealt with the theme of virginity, this was at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. And I started there and I kind of never left. And it switched from being a project about virginity to the virgin. And the longer I studied it and uh, the more I focused on the text itself, the more this interpretation came out to me. Right. So what did what do we see in these uh, related to the Virgin Mary? How would you characterize her portrayal in the end town plays? Yeah. So uh, critics have been talking about these plays. There's not a lot of criticism about these plays, but the criticism that there is, you have a lot of record of critics being uncomfortable with mm. what they're seeing in these plays. And that stood out to me. So you'll have a critic saying, this is disgusting. You'll have a critic saying, this is ridiculous. I hate it. This is ugly. This is obscene. So when you have that kind of record, you know something interesting is going on. And yeah. I, uh, there's a critic from the early 20th century named Rossiter, and I really like his description of his response to the plays. He says they're funny but they also are really terrifying and kind of awful. And yet I'm laughing. And mm. the Virgin Mary seems to be represented in these plays like a servant girl who has been knocked up. And he says, I can't believe that, that's, that this is what I'm seeing, but this seems to be what I'm seeing. And that's a pretty accurate description of the Virgin Mary in these plays. She's subjected to all these violent trials of her virginity, one after another, after another, after another. And she always triumphs over adversity, but then it just happens again. And it happens all the way through the compilation of plays. And these trials of her virginity are pretty brutal and violent and obscene. And she's being insulted and she's being called whore in the late medieval vocabulary. All these words for whore like scoot. Um, yeah. <laughs> she's a fool scoot. She's a foul scout. And she is being uh, subjected to postpartum gynecological examinations that are conducted on stage by angry midwives. And she is subjected to a trial uh, uh, by her village by the temple, by the court, and she is insulted by everyone. And the insults are written in this obscene, violent register, but they also seem to be played for laughs. And that's what really interested me, was the idea that these were crowd pleasers, that these in some way yeah. were jokes that everyone would laugh at. And in the criticism of the plays that I was reading when I was writing my dissertation, that was denied. It was denied that the audience would have laughed at Mary. Mm. 
And yeah, I was curious as to could I find a way to interpret how an audience could laugh at Mary and still be devoted to Mary. And that's what I think I found. Right. So uh, I'm, I, I should say, when I think of the, the humor involved with the situation, I tend to think of Joseph. And I know yes. that we, we see that, you know, that what if you were a husband who all of a sudden your wife was pregnant and she's claiming that it's, it's not that she was having an affair, which you might think, right. but that it was, you know, uh, an immaculate conception and that kind of thing. As you're describing what the figure of Mary is subjected to in these plays, I'm not sure I I am seeing where they would find the humor in that. Is it just like a nervous laughter, like a laughing in church kind of thing, or where do you where did you find the connection between a community that could maintain some respect or some devotion to Mary, but also be finding humor in this kind of situation? Right. So, yeah, you're absolutely right that Joseph is the obvious joke in the story of mm -hmm. the virgin birth. It's even funny in the New Testament itself when the right. angel comes down to him and says, you can't divorce this woman, even though the child is not yours, you got to stick with it because it's God's baby. That's funny. And that's been a joke within Christianity and about Christianity since the earliest days of Christianity, this idea of Joseph as uh, God's fool, as they sometimes call him in late medieval drama. And kind of to me, that implies if Joseph is God's fool, then Mary and God are making a fool of Joseph. And mm. Mary mm -hmm. becomes a trickster, a comedian, it becomes funny. She's part of that joke. So there is a, in the end town play of the nativity of Jesus, they add an apocryphal story uh, into the story from the New Testament that we're familiar with, where Mary and Joseph are walking along on the way to Bethlehem and they see a cherry tree. And Mary asks Joseph to go fetch her cherries because she's pregnant and she's hungry and she has a craving for cherries. And the way that the end town play phrases this episode mirrors the earlier episode of Eve asking for the forbidden fruit. Hmm. So it creates a parallel between Eve and the apple and the snake and Mary and Joseph. And whereas Eve is punished for asking for forbidden fruit and for taking the forbidden fruit, in the Mary play, everything goes the opposite way. Mary gets the fruit. Joseph tries to fetch it for her. He can't do it because he's too old and decrepit. He loses his temper and he says some unkind things to Mary. And he basically says to her, why don't you get the man who impregnated you to get you your cherries? Which mm. is rude. Right. <laughs> Which is right. rude. And it's something he's not supposed to say. And angels have already told him repeatedly to stop saying this kind of thing. And he is always reverting and saying it again. When he says this, a miracle occurs and the tree blossoms and bends to touch Mary's feet so she can eat her fill. And the point is, God is the father of this baby. God will feed Mary. God will give her the fruit that she asks for. So it's the opposite of Eve. Eve was denied a forbidden fruit and took it anyway. When Mary asked for fruit that was out of season and out of reach, God bends to her will. To me, this is funny. Hmm. This idea that, uh, and there's, there's theology behind this. There's a lot of uh, high medieval theology and late medieval theology about Mary tricking God, seducing God, bewitching God. And the kind of idea behind it is Eve, Eve tried to get God to succumb to woman's will, and it did not work. Right. But Mary succeeded. Right. So it's almost like if it, it still is including the figure of Joseph, and it's, it's almost saying, what if you had a, a marriage that had th a third person involved, but that third person was God? Wouldn't that right, be? Right, exactly. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and I think the obvious joke is that Joseph becomes really funny in that scenario because he's made a fool of. Right. But uh, God is also, in a sense, made a fool of. There's a medieval theologian named Bernardino of Siena, and he has this sermon that he gives about the Virgin Mary that, for me, really sums up a lot of the points I'm trying to make, where he says, this virgin seduced God, bewitched God, and overthrew his reason. And she did it with her charisma and with her beauty. And it's fantastic. It's fantastic for all of us sinners that God can't see straight because he loves Mary so much. Right. If a sinner uh, can't, <laughs> that God would punish a sinner with justice if a sinner deserved to be punished, Mary would let the sinner get away with it. And if the sinner talks to Mary, God will let the sinner get away with it too. So it's a good deal for everyone. 
Right. It almost makes God more of a a god in the in the that we might associate with Greek myths or something. That it's yes. um, he's more of a participant. He's he's personified. You could almost imagine a Mary in this kind of scenario saying, "Well, okay, you want me to play a part in this." event you have in mind of having a son that's living here on earth, well, don't think you're going to make all the rules about it. I've, I'm going to have some say in this. Yeah. And um, sometimes the way it's phrased in theology and in literature and in iconography in the late Middle Ages is God does not want Jesus to be incarnated. Mary wants it. So that's what happens. Right. It's it's even phrased that that way. I mean, so, so there there is this kind of typical medieval scene of the trial of mankind, and you'll have God as the judge, Satan as the prosecutor, mankind as the defendant, and Mary is mankind's lawyer. This is a very typical scene, and in this scene, Satan is advocating to God, "You need to send all of mankind to hell. They belong to me. Look what they've done. Look at Adam and Eve. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah. Look at Noah's flood." And then uh, these people don't deserve to be redeemed. Then Mary makes her argument, and often her argument is simply, look at me. <laughs> and often she will uh, take out her breasts and show them to God, and the, and, the, and the trial is over. He says, okay, whatever she wants goes, and Satan loses. That's also very funny. Yeah. And it, it does seem to fit right in with that medieval mindset, as we see in Chaucer and other places, of uh, women are— you know, wives are always going to cheat on you and you need to accept it that you're probably being deceived. It's probably better to have a, a don't ask, don't tell when it comes to your wife's uh, sexuality. She's probably in bed with the neighbor even as we speak and th that kind of thing. So it, it almost seems to fit with what we're seeing in other texts from the period. Yeah. And Chaucer likes to make that joke. He likes to make that comparison we don't know what Mary is up to. God doesn't know what Mary is up to, and we don't know what our wives are up to. It's all this mystery. It's probably not going very well for us, <laughs> but yeah. we need to take what we can get. We need to be humble. Yeah. And that's that's Chaucer's uh, winking ethical Christian argument. Let's all be humble and right. let them do what they want and accept that. Right. That to him is a Christian argument. I mean, with a wink, but but it uh, it makes a kind of theological sense about humility. Yeah. Okay, well, that's that was the next question I wanted to ask, is that seems like he's uh, adapting it to theology, but sort of a, a bigger question I had was whether these playwrights, as far as you can tell, and the people putting on these plays, whether they were coming at it with particular ideas of theology or whether they were just hearing the story and then basically saying, well, there's a lot of of uh, human interest going on here. We could make a really fascinating play out of really developing these ideas. If, if what we're hearing from our church elders is something we're supposed to take as true, well, then let's, let's have some fun with it, and let's see where that would really lead us if we exaggerated certain things and, and kind of played out how this would actually play out in, in a real-life real situation? Or do you think there were sort of alternative theologies that were growing up and that were trying to promote a particular alternative to the official church doctrine? I would say both. I would say that there was a lot of creative freedom for the individual Christian before the Reformation. And the Reformation, part of its agenda was to streamline uh -huh. Christian devotion. Yeah. And that's that's explicit. And reformers will complain. I went and found this guy in this village, and I tried to get him to tell me basic Christian theology. And he said, oh, yeah, I think I saw Jesus in a play one time. He was on a tree, and he was bleeding. And it, that to them was horrifying, that Christianity was so different in each individual Christian, that it was so um, scattered. And they mm. really wanted it to be much more reformed, streamlined, and uh, consolidated. And right. they succeeded in that. But that does mean if you go back before the Reformation, Christianity is, has a lot more creative liberty at the ground level. And, and, that, and these plays come out of that, I think. By liberty, do you mean that uh, people would be freer to sin and, and, you know, what might be considered sin or that the, the audience members should feel freer to engage in uh, free love or that kind of thing? Or do you mean freer <laughs> in the sense of, well, you have Christianity and you might want to focus on the resurrection, but I'm going to focus on Mary and I'm going to, I'm going to, she's going to be the one that I sort of worship or, or focus on as part of my Christianity. 
Yeah, so I think the way I would put it is that I would say that the church didn't have the resources or the inclination to police Christianity at the level that became possible and desirable after Mm. the Reformation. Mm -hmm. That's a kind of basic Foucauldian historical argument that we get more and more disciplined, more and more controlled as history progresses, uh, so that in the late medieval period, it's a little bit more of a free-for-all than it is in uh, the early modern period after the Reformation uh, because of their efforts to streamline and consolidate Christianity. Uh, But also, theologically, there are important differences between late medieval Catholic theology and early modern Protestant theology. Uh, Free will goes away. The cult of the saints goes away. You have the new doctrine of human depravity, whereas in the late Middle Ages, it's all about incarnationalism. It's a very bodily religion. That really changes uh, during the Reformation, and the assumption becomes the human body is irredeemable, and the only way you're going to be saved is through God's grace. Right. You can't work for it, and the body certainly doesn't—in in, in late medieval incarnational theology, there is this explosion of devotion to the body of Jesus and the body of Mary, to their blood and their milk and their tears and their hair and the bodies of the saints. That's gone after the Reformation. That really changes about Christianity. Uh, But also, yes, theology, late medieval theology accommodated a lot of these jokes that I'm talking about. The doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was a new medieval doctrine. It was being debated, hotly debated in the late medieval period. And you had some theologians who explained it one way and other theologians who explained it another way and other theologians who thought it was completely inappropriate. And they were all fighting. And the Pope, when they would say to him, you need to make a decision. He would say, what? You know, he, he didn't want to weigh in on this debate. And it took the church centuries to figure out how to accommodate the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. But in the medieval period, it's just this raucous debate. Mm. And there are all different kinds of theories as to how it could be possible or not possible. Right. And some of them, at least as they play out in the plays, don't suggests that it's God as the father at all. Well, yes. So that's uh, on the virgin birth. uh, I think that in the plays, the virgin birth, the joke about the virgin birth that is told in the plays is when Joseph asks Mary, whose child is this? She gives him so many answers. So it's a running joke in the play. She says, well, you're the father. And he says, well, I'm not the father. She says, well, God's the father. And he said, God can't be the father. God doesn't have sex with women. And she says, well, it was really the Holy Spirit. He's like, who's the Holy Spirit? She's like, actually, the Archangel Gabriel, he explains, who is this angel? And there are just more and more and more people. And her maids keep trying to help her by mentioning, well, that's Jesus. He's like, who's Jesus? Well, he's God and man. So are there three of them? How many men were in this room? And it just gets more and more ridiculous. And the joke is that it was all of these people, and yet it was none of these people. Yeah. And doesn't, in one of them, doesn't Joseph conclude that it was some boy? He he adds, I think it was some boy. That's his particular theory. And in some plays, it's some men. He he doesn't know whether it was one man or all the men in the village. He becomes very paranoid. Yeah. That is not the picture of... Mary that we would have today. It's unimaginable that we would have a film or anything where that would, I mean, it would have to be, I think, a a much more satirical, uh, cynical, irreverent kind of movie that I could even imagine being made in today's climate. Well, there's a really interesting film from the mid 20th century by Rossellini Mm. uh, called Mm -hmm. Love. And he tells this story, basically. He tells the story of a woman who thinks that she, like the Virgin Mary, has conceived in a virgin birth, and the viewer knows that that's not true, and that it's this rape that she doesn't remember. And the village thinks that she's a prostitute, and they persecute her, but the filmmaker has this enormous empathy for her. Mm. And there's a sense of belief in her claim that her birth is a virgin birth in the sense that all births are sacred and holy and immaculate. And it's this story about mercy. And when it premiered, the Vatican understood it as a miracle of the Virgin. They understood it as part of this older tradition of stories about sin and mercy and the Virgin Mary and sexuality, an ancient tradition in Christianity. But the Catholic League of America thought it was defamation and picketed it. Yeah, so they thought that it was sort of suggesting, well, maybe the Immaculate Conception didn't really happen. Maybe Mary just was... Uh, confused and deceiving herself. Yeah, they, they took it as an insult against Christianity. And mm. this, these jokes 
can be read either way. They can be read as insults or as compliments, depending on your perspective and depending on the tradition that you hear in these comments. Right. And I think that today we read them straight as insults, but they have an older tradition as compliments. It's very complicated compliments that resonate with theology, but also with comedy. Right. Okay. So when these plays were being produced, so it sounds like the church was not uh, out burning people at the stake for putting them on or anything. They were they themselves sort of recognized that there was some um, discrepancies or or that the the doctrine hadn't fully caught up with some of the confusion associated associated with this, and they they weren't trying to tamp this down. It wasn't until the Reformation that that happened. Yes, that seems to be accurate. We really don't know who produced the plays in any kind of precise way, but it seems like the church was involved, and it seems like the church was okay with it. The church to- tolerated this kind of drama, maybe even helped to produce it. That seems quite likely, that they were part of the community that made these plays, that produced these plays. And devotion to the Virgin was taken as a kind of net good to the extent that it was trusted. Mm. It's extremely rare to find anyone who had something positive to say about the Virgin Mary that could ever register with any authority as heresy, because you had such leeway when it came to devotion to the Virgin. That's part of the deal. There are all these late medieval stories about sinners who found favor with the Virgin by doing strange things, like stripping down to their underwear and juggling in front of her statue. Mm. She would descend from heaven and wipe the sweat from their brow to prove, you don't know what I like. Yeah. I like all kinds of things. I like a good show or (laughs) a sinner who was completely illiterate and never spent a day in church, but had this love in his heart for the Virgin Mary and he dies doing something horrible, like going to see his concubine. He drowns in a river. But the last thing that he says is the rosary. And she saves him. There are all these stories about people who it seemed like they didn't have a shot, but because they love the Virgin Mary, they are saved. So that's part of her deal. I mean, that's why we call the Hail Mary pass. She's there for you, right? When no one else is. It's the idea that she is accepting, she is forgiving, she is lenient. Her mercy is promiscuous. And the church thought, why would we take this away? This is one of this is one of the strongest things we have going. Uh, yeah, historians of the cult of the Virgin often point out she is the most popular aspect of Christianity in the Middle Ages. Yeah, the right. people love her. <laughs> she she is the selling point. But also, I would say it wasn't. I, I wouldn't put it that the church is being manipulative. A love of Mary cuts across all three estates, and it goes all the way to the top. The Pope was as devoted to the Virgin as a peasant in the street. Everyone loved her. Right. Not not everyone. Occasionally you will find a medieval th- theologian who thinks that the cult of the Virgin is excessive, who thinks that people need to calm down. But even those people aren't, even those people say, ah, oh, what's the harm? That's just generally the attitude, because it's trusted that this is a net good, that this is benign. Right. And and the Gospels are not exactly clear on a lot of these questions. So you could see right. where there was some, some different viewpoints or, you know, before the Church kind of developed the doctrine, that it was—there's some ambiguity as to Mary's sexuality. Well, there's ambiguity even in scholastic theology. It's coming from the Church, too. So scholastics, mm. um, moderns, uh, we, we find it— Uh, strange how they approach Christianity. They have a scientific approach for them. Science and theology go together. So they don't think it's inappropriate to investigate the gynecology of the virgin birth. And they will engage in that. They will say, how biologically did this happen? And they have many theories. And some of them are more surprising to us than others. But all of them, they are taking the science of sexuality as they understand it. And they're applying it to the virgin birth. And they're trying to figure out how it worked step by step. And right. they're debating it, and there are many opinions. And do we not ask that question because we're more squeamish, or because it just we've just realized there there's not going to be a, a clear cut answer, and so it's too inappropriate to even try to question it. Yeah, it's, there's a big cultural shift that happens where uh, we are no longer comfortable with the marriage of science and theology that no longer makes sense to us Mm. as a marriage. Uh, And 
we are not as bodily in our Christianity. So the scholastics are really interested in the science of Christianity, but also in the physicality of Christianity. And after the Reformation, that begins to seem inappropriate. Yeah, Christianity needs to be more spiritual. It needs to be divorced from the body. That's what registers with us as polite and appropriate and decorous. Yeah. And often, I, often when I'm teaching, I'll put up a slide of late medieval iconography and students will gasp because the just right, just in of itself, it upsets our sense of religious decorum. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, and you make a, you, you give some great examples in your book of the Chris Ophelia art exhibits and the response of Mayor Giuliani and others to uh, what was viewed as a defilement or a, a desecration of the iconography of the Virgin Mary. Mm-hmm. It's still something that is very uh, much kind of a hot button issue when it occurs, even in the context of an art museum, for example. Right. Do you think that when the need or the the desire of the audience members in the Middle Ages to view this more bodily and to have some of these things explained more was that they were more cynical about whether any of this was real if they couldn't get an explanation that would explain the inexplicable? Hmm. I think that it wasn't um, the premise of scholasticism. I I don't put this. I think that there is is, uh, an assumption within scholasticism that Christianity is more accessible to investigation than we would think that it is, because we would think it is inexplicable, it is a black box, it is a matter of faith. Whereas in the Middle Ages, scholasticism said, I believe I can find some answers here using a logical approach, a scientific approach, mm. an exegetical approach. Let me let me give you, I'll, I'll say this in another way that I don't mean to be insulting to any group of people, but I'm imagining mm. that if if you were trying to bring a new religion to someone and mm-hmm. you were trying to explain something like... Um, you know, that the Son of God walked on earth, that you might have to explain it differently if you were talking to a group of professors who were used to dealing with abstract concepts and and ideas and spirituality than you would if you were in a town trying to explain it to a group of farmers. Mm. Yes, (laughs) that has been an important argument in the history of the criticism of this kind of drama. Yeah. That is really what what critics had to say for quite some time was we we can explain this by saying to ourselves, this is how you have to communicate Christianity to a medieval peasantry. But I would argue that it's coming from all levels of the society, that this is also that if right. it's also what's happening in the ivory tower of scholasticism, and if it's also what's happening in the monastery theologically, and it's also what's happening in iconography and it's also what's happening in these plays that were made to be performed in the public square, that it's more than that. Yeah. But, um, yeah. I mean, the way that I often explain it to my students is in the Middle Ages, Catholicism was life, whereas today Christianity has been limited in its cultural territory. Mm. There are parts of life that we do not consider to be the purview of Christianity, whereas in the Middle Ages— Christianity was all things. It was a drunken party in the streets. It was uh, your nightmares. It was every aspect of your relationships with everyone you knew. So it just was a bigger thing. It was a bigger, more capacious, more varied thing than it is today. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. And in turn, Christianity had to be more capacious. Yes. Yes. It was It was, It was. was everything. It, it From dirty jokes— to uh, pious thoughts about the abstract, all of these things could fit under the rubric of Christianity because it was so integrated into daily life. Right. Okay. So that kind of starts to get me to the answers of my last couple of questions here. And one was going to be what this depiction, the different depiction that we see of the Virgin Mary in the Middle Ages tells us about the Middle Ages and about the, the medieval mind. And it sounds like that's the the key insight that we should take from this is that it it shows how integrated Catholicism was into the minds of the uh, the peasantry and into the minds of everyone of everyone in, yeah of of everyone and when something belongs to everyone everyone puts their little spin on it 
This is one of Chaucer's favorite jokes. Each of his pilgrims has a very different reading of the meaning of Christianity, and they are all totally sure that they're right. And they're taking wildly creative liberties. So the wife of Bath says, I know that Jesus is behind me in my sixth marriage. Jesus loves women who get married six or seven or eight times. He's into it. And the pardoner says, I know that Jesus understands why I lie to you. Yeah. Each it's, it's, it's self-justifying. And I think in Chaucer, sometimes that's been read as this uh, very moral joke, but I think it's also a merciful joke, a funny joke about how each of us puts our own little spin on things. Right. And, and that and, changes what Christianity is going to look like if everyone is doing that. Yeah. And there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about before I get to, to the, the final question here. And that is that, the evidence like from the in the gospels and and i guess elsewhere but that mary was not a virginal person that she that jesus had siblings which is something that i i had completely forgotten um, right and is that something that is being downplayed today because of this the ossification of mary as a as a virgin well, it changes from denomination to denomination and from sect to sect. Hmm. But within Catholicism, the history of Mary's virginity is a history of increasingly strict virginity. So there is a stage early on when it is not uncommon for it to be understood that she was a virgin until the birth of Jesus. And then after that, her and Joseph had a normal married life and they had many children who are mm -hmm. Jesus's siblings. And the, uh, the text of the New Testament seems to support that reading. Jerome did not agree with that reading. And after Jerome, sibling was understood to mean cousin. Mm. And there was an elaborate explanation as to how Mary would have stayed a virgin forever. And that's because of the new doctrine of her perpetual virginity, as opposed to her virginity until birth, until the birth of Jesus. Whereas right. after that, after Jerome, she's a virgin postpartum, and the birth of Jesus does not disturb her virginity in the way that implicitly it does in the earlier theory. And she just becomes more and more and more chaste doctrinally right. from the beginning of Christianity to the present day of Catholicism. She's become increasingly chaste according to dogma, according to doctrine. Isn't there another point where Joseph says, this baby can't be mine because we didn't consummate the marriage until after? It's implied in the Gospel of Matthew uh, that she is going to, that her and Joseph are going to start having their normal married life after hmm. the birth of Jesus. Uh, but then Apocrypha and uh, commentary can uh, change, you know, the meaning of the Gospel. So for after Jerome, it is read a different way. It is read to say she was a perpetual virgin, her virginity remained intact postpartum. And she and Joseph had a white marriage or a sexless marriage for their entire lives, and they both had taken vows of virginity. And by the late Middle Ages, that's that's an accepted story, that Joseph and Mary engaged in a sexless marriage and made mutual vows of virginity like a monk and a nun. Okay, so here's my final question. So mm. I'm not particularly religious. I grew up with Christianity, but I'm not particularly religious today, and I'm in, in favor of free speech and and freedom of expression and I love different ideas and I I'm kind of an irreverent person and yet I find myself shocked by some of these things when I encounter them and and you know somehow the uh the treatment of the virgin mary has the power to shock me if it's mm. um you know I I'm like anyone else where it's it seems uh you know disturbing and so I guess my question is what does it say about us and our society that we've gotten to this point? Is that because of our respect for religion or respect for her or our respect for virginity or our general, mm. what do you think it says about us that we don't go to plays, you know, a, a play like this, if it were put on, would have the power to shock us? Right. And when this play was revived for the first time in the 20th century, the director was arrested. Oh, wow for transgressing against England's blasphemy laws at the time, which is yeah. really interesting that a play that was a devotional play in late medieval England when it's restaged in the 20th century registers as blasphemy. It's the same text. Yeah, it's the and, same play. And we like to think of, you know, everyone in the past as being uh, simple and, and sort of, you know, that we've progressed and that we're more artistic and we're, we're generally less shockable than those uh, early creatures would have been. 
<laughs> and, and it seems yeah. like it's just the opposite, at least when it comes to the, the medieval period. I think that medievalists like finding these things in the past that disturb our sense of progress, that disturb the arrogance of the present moment. Mm-hmm. That's that's what we're in it for. Most medievalists, I think there's a real charm to looking back and discovering something you really didn't expect to find. Do you think we've lost something? Would you would you say that there was a benefit to uh, having a more freewheeling approach to these kinds of questions? I tend to see it uh, first and foremost, I think, from a feminist perspective. And Mm -hmm. it seems to me a shame that uh, first and second wave feminism made the decision that the Virgin Mary was a tool of the patriarchy and kind of abandoned the feminist project of investigating her history Mm. and the history of her reception. Because the Virgin Mary, it's often pointed out by Mariologists, she is probably the most famous woman in history. Yes, yeah, I was thinking about that as well. I, I hadn't really thought about that until I was reading your book, actually. And I just thought, has there been a more important woman in, you know, the history of Western civilization? I'm not sure that there has. I don't know who right. you would who you would compare her with as far as influence and and right. people's, you know, recognition of her and their uh, the way she's right. she's been treated. She's in a class by herself and. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Simone de Beauvoir, Mary Daly, feminists in the first and second wave wrote very influential readings of Mary as a tool of the patriarchy who is bad for women. Mm. And I think that an opportunity was lost to investigate this rich vein of women's history and the history of sexuality that on the surface of things might look Like it only has one meaning. There can only be one way to interpret her. But I think if you go back to her cultural zenith, to the moment of her greatest cultural influence in the late Middle Ages, she has many more meanings than we give her credit for. Mm. She doesn't mean one thing. Okay, so so I guess what you're saying is the first and second wave feminists would say she's an example of the way that men want you to think of women, which is if they're any good at all, they have to be pure and, and virginal and chaste. And it's the sort of the, the dilemma that women have of they either have to be virgins or they have to be whores. Exactly. Um, and what you're saying is uh, that misses an opportunity in saying, let's not focus on the way that that she might be treated today or the way that she's been handed down to us. But let's take a look at an earlier period and really explore some of the the different strands of uh, the different possibilities and the way that she was treated by an earlier, an earlier age. Right. Right. And the, the second wave feminist reading of Mary really was, if she's the exception that proves the rule, then she is the tool that is being used to make all women feel bad about themselves right. because they can't achieve this impossible standard. Right. And I think that that is, and that's of course an accurate reading if all of those terms are set as you have them set in that assumption. But if you look to late medieval culture, you see that's not all that she can do. Yeah. She can do much, much more than that. And so I'm, I'm excited to, open up new feminist interpretations of the Virgin Mary. Right. And even if we maybe aren't getting traction with that view of Mary today, we can still, uh, by exploring the views of Mary in the past, we can still uh, come to some new understandings. Yes. And I would say that it's there and it isn't there. It's hiding in plain sight in contemporary culture. These Many of these ideas still exist. The idea that Mary is the mother of mercy, that she forgives everything, that a sinner can go to her and she will have mercy when God does not have mercy. That's still a common cultural idea in Christianity, and it comes out of this late medieval theology. So that's that's very much still there. Mm. Okay, well, the book is called Virgin Whore. It's available now at Amazon and other booksellers. Professor Solberg, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Thank you for having me. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. My thanks to Professor Emma Maggie Solberg for joining me today. And 
As I mentioned, there is much, much more in her book that we didn't cover. If you're interested in books and ideas and seeing where we came from as a culture, as a civilization, and if you'd like to compare ourselves to another group of people who thought about things in a very different way in order to try to understand why we think the way we think and what it all means, then you will enjoy this book, Virgin Whore, available on Amazon and elsewhere. We'll be back soon with another couple of short stories with our friends from the Literature Supporters Club and some other special guests are in the works too, so sign up now. Subscribe to the podcast and tell all those deadbeat friends of yours to sign up too. What are they doing? Living in some la-la land? Watching the world pass them by? Missing out? Those poor, miserable creatures. Throw them a lifeline and sign them up for some stimulation. We are all in this together, even the poorest and most miserable among us. Actually, those are my people, my secret sharers, my brothers and sisters, my doppelgangers, my self. Better leave things there. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 